I mean, I think anything you you practice long enough, the way the way that you think about things, and you as you see more people, those things start to evolve and change. Um, Wait, so, you, so you, I, are, are you going to say that you no longer believe in... to people too often anymore? Um, yes! I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. George, you were just ahead of the curve in. when you uh, fell off that bandwagon. You're exactly <laughs> right. So, see, I told you clamshells were garbage, Carrie. I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> I you knew were so it. good at them, though. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant and Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel, a new sponsor this week that we'll talk a little bit more about at the end of the podcast. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. And we have with us a special guest. It's interview week, and this week we are interviewing Carrie Smith. Carrie, hello. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So thanks for being on. This is actually Carrie's second time on the podcast. Uh, Carrie agreed to be on the podcast a couple of years ago. It was like the third or fourth episode of the podcast. It was super early um, and, and kind of helped us get off the ground a little bit. But uh, Carrie's a physical therapist, and we talked a couple of years ago about what physical therapists can do for endurance athletes. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about, about that today. Uh, but Carrie, you've been doing a lot more stuff than just physical therapy over the course of the past couple of years since we last talked. Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to for the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So the past couple of years, um, so I graduated from physical therapy school in 2014 and started practicing then. Um, and a couple of years into that, I got back into a little bit of coaching for an endurance athletes um, and kind of throughout this this whole process of working with athletes and working with people who are um, trying to prevent injury or rehab from injury or, you know, whatever they're looking for coming into therapy, um, you know, just started to see that there's a lot more involved with sports performance, wellness, and recovering from injury or preventing injury than just looking at and working with the body alone. So that kind of led to exploring some new avenues and, checking out things like uh, mindfulness, um, you know, doing some things that essentially look at the person as as a whole human being with all those other things in life going on and, and trying to figure out how to best help them from that aspect. Right on. Very good. And and in the process of kind of adding all those things to your resume and adding those things to your offerings, I guess is a good way to say it, um, you've, uh, you've, you've moved from where you were before. Is that right? Yes, yes. So, um, so I'm, I'm doing things in a, a couple different locations right now. Um, so for the physical therapy, and I've started practicing some uh, craniosacral therapy as well. I've been doing that out of the Heal Center, just off of Roswell Road, right out of 285. And then the VO2 testing that I've been doing, I've um, been doing that uh, back at one-on-one physical therapy again in their gym space. So that's right off of a Northeast, Northeast Expressway. And, and for folks who may not be familiar, uh, tell us a little bit about VO2 max testing and what that is and what it entails and maybe why it's important for, for endurance athletes. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, VO2 testing, um, uh, there's a few things that we're looking for when we do that. And the way that I like to conduct the test um, for endurance athletes is a little bit cool VO2 test that you might have seen at the gym or read about. So, um 
for well for athletes and the general population um, uh, the way that we do the test is you know you come in well rested and we go through an exercise test um, and the protocol is always tailored to the individual so but for everyone it'll start at a very easy intensity and then every few minutes we increase that intensity until you can't continue with the test um, so the VO2 max is a, a valuable number to know, um, and that VO2 max is just your body's max ability to use oxygen to break down fuel to let you do the activity that you're doing. Um, and there's value in that, but the things that are more relevant for endurance athletes are some of the thresholds that occur below that. So with the equipment that I use that captures expired air while you're exercising, It'll pick up your ventilatory threshold two, which is closely related to lactate threshold, which more people are familiar with. And then it'll also pick up your ventilatory threshold one, um, which is associated with, uh, there's, there's also a term called lactate threshold one or your two millimole of blood lactate value. Um, and that value is correlated really well with you know, kind of your aerobic endurance all day kind of pace that you would be in for a half or a full Ironman pace. Um, So, so kind of the first thing we do with that is, um, you know, do the test. It takes 20 to 25 minutes and then we identify each of those thresholds. Um, And from that, either share that information with the coach if they feel comfortable um, creating zones from that or, we'll go ahead and make zones based off of those values and give that to the athlete for training. Um, so let's, let's, and, let's paint the picture a little bit um, because I actually did this with you about a year ago. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and if, if you're listening to Carrie's description, you're like, that sounds really hard. It is really hard. Um, yeah, it's but, really a max test. Yeah, yeah. For those who've so, never so, done so, it before. So you run until you can't run anymore while Carrie gleefully turns up the speed faster and faster and faster. <laughs> Um, but, but, but you have to do all of it with this big old mask on your face. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, so imagine, you know, running as hard as you possibly can or getting to a place where, where you're, you're, you're bent over exhausted from running, but you're doing the whole thing with a big mask on your face with all these tubes coming out of it. Uh, that's measuring, like Carrie said, the expired air and, and, and all those sorts of things. So, so yeah. Um, but you also do it on, you do it for people on bikes as well, right? It doesn't have to be a running test. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be a running test. So do it on uh, bikes as well. So you can bring in, I have a compu trainer that would set it up, and then you can bring in your bike and do the same type of test on the bike as well. Um, and it's it's been really interesting, I think, for um, endurance athletes to come in. I, I think that a lot of people end up training in this kind of gray zone where they're they're always going kind of hard but not all out but they're always yeah. kind of in this um at least in the zones i create this zone three area where they're they're not really training any system specifically and they'll, they'll definitely get better for a certain amount of time there but i feel like people tend to plateau a little early there um so so kind of what we found for a lot of people is their easy days just aren't quite easy enough um so that i think that's been um kind of eye-opening for a lot of people coming in um, and then also from that test, you can get the amount and type of calories that you're using. Um, and it's it's been on the different ends of extremes for athletes. Some people were surprised how many calories they're burning um, when they're out there exercising. And then for other people, 
um, it's like, wow, that's all I burn when I go out and do a, a 60 minute bike ride. Um, and then I just replaced it with half a pizza when I'm done. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I think the, the information and the individual nature of it is, is really worthwhile. Absolutely. And I'll also let you know, George and I were just doing a, a fist bump here. We heard you say, talk about the, the gray zone and, and that oftentimes easy runs need, a bit, need to be a bit easier because that is a, uh, a theme that we have on this podcast over and over again. So it's nice to hear that that is uh, backed up with, with some of your, your VO2 max testing right on. And, and findings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when you talk about kind of the different systems and, and how they relate to the testing, uh, you know, what are some key takeaways that, that you give to folks maybe once they've, they've done the testing um, and then how they can incorporate the, the, the knowledge that they have from the test into their training? Yeah, sure. Um, so kind of the key things that it give people to take away is, um, you know, just the knowledge of those different thresholds. And um, the, way, the way that I set up zones for people, I'd, I'd put the VT1 at the top of their zone 2, um, which I guess with the, the lingo I use, so that's kind of the top of your aerobic metabolism zone. Um, and then the, uh, we, we might the top say that's of the top of your easy pace. That's the fastest your easy pace should be or something like that. Right. Oh, yes, that would, that would be your, that would be their easy pace. Um, so most people tend to train beyond that for, for really the majority of their, their workouts. Um, you know, and then give them, hey, this this is your, we use uh, your VT2 or lactate threshold as the top of zone four. Um, so I, g- I give them those zones and then some, just kind of some information how they can use those zone, their zones if they're not working with a coach, if they're trying to design things on their own. Um, and then also just some, you know, we just kind of have a conversation about uh, calories and intake during training on and during racing, if that's of interest to them too. Um, yeah, and then for people who have it, if they, you know, just show them some simple ways you can go into training peaks after your your workout and just, you know, if you look at the heart rate histogram, you can see pretty quickly where, where you spent the majority of your time. Right on. Very good. And, yeah, there's a, there's a, a few things that kind of pop up from, from what it is you're describing here. So one question I have just kind of almost as an aside. So, so you, you get this printout. Um, and it's based very much on the testing that you've just done with athletes. And, and yeah, and hand- sorry, George, you got it's a little bit quieter. It's oh, a little I'm bit sorry, harder I'm to sorry. hear you. Yeah, oh, thanks, yeah no worries. thanks for telling me. Is that better now? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, oh, there we go. So yeah. I, I was I was starting to get a little bit too comfortable here, starting to lean back in my chair, getting a little <laughs> bit too far away from my microphone. So taking in all the uh, the stuff you're telling me about VT1 and two. All right. So so mm-hmm. you, you you get this big printout, and it's based on work that the athlete has just done and testing that you just did with them. And, yes. and, you, and you show them, you say, okay, this is the fastest that your easy runs should be. If you're going faster than this, it's too fast for your easy runs. That's your ventilatory flush threshold one, your VT1. Um, yes. Do, do, what, is, what is the general response that you get from people when you show them that? Do they, do, they, do they buy it? Because so often we've talked about on this podcast that we tell people that easy days need to be easy, and they're like, yeah, no, they don't. That's not going to make me any faster. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I, I think that people are, are generally surprised that uh, it, it's usually a little bit slower than they, they expect it to be. Right. Um, so one, one thing that's hard in the summer is – your speed is going to slow down at the the same relative heart rate just when it's really hot and humid 
Um, <clears throat> so I, I think having people, you know, kind of follow those guidelines in the summer can be a little bit um, difficult, but, um, you know, kind of talk about the benefit of, you know, it, it's not what you're doing in, in any one particular workout that's going to make or break your season or make you a good athlete over time. But, you know, what, what can you string together over the course of weeks and months and years as you're preparing for these different races? Um, so I, I think um, if they can kind of get a handle on how how this kind of easy on easy days and then, you know, really work your butt off when it's when it's a hard day and you're supposed to work hard, right. um, how that balance and play back and forth is um, beneficial for training and recovery and longevity in the sport and how that over time can really help them improve. Um, if they can kind of get a handle on that, I think that that's a little bit easier to follow. Um and also that, you know, training in that easy day on, you know, when it is supposed to be easy, if you, you stick with that, those, those easy paces do start to get faster over time, too. So, and which, which actually segues directly into the other question that, that kind of popped into my mind as you were describing the, the outcome of the testing. And that's um, kind of related to what you were talking about of, of, you know, having to slow it down in the summer and stuff like that. Well, as someone gets fitter, um, mm-hmm. those, those ventilatory thresholds are going to change. Um, whether mm-hmm. you're measuring them on the bike or, or on the run, those ventilatory thresholds are going to change. So how do you, what, what sort of guidance do you give to people on that? Or do you have, do you, do you tell them to come back in and test again or, or, or what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And no, a great question. So, um, usually recommend people, <clears throat> you know, if they want to use these for training that they come in and do some testing, like right when they start their training cycle for whatever race they want to focus on. Um, and then those, um, uh, there's never huge fluctuations in the heart rates, but the, the speeds at those intensities will definitely change. So as they get in, um, you know, about eight, eight weeks out from their big race, and say that's another good time to test so that you can adjust those and then do whatever fine-tuning you need to to get ready for race day. Right on. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. certainly interesting. Um, and to kind of reiterate, reiterate some of the points that you made, one thing we say over and over again, or one thing we have to kind of harp on over is, you know, trusting the process, trusting the training, trusting your coaches that, you know, even if you go easy, that consistent training, you know, will, will lead to improvement. So um, to kind of to build on that, you know, how much improvement do you tend to see, you know, over maybe a six-month period or a year or so? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, well, it, it depends what what stage the athlete's coming in when they when they do the testing. So um, obviously, somebody who comes in and they're very new to the sport, they they could have a huge change in their um, speeds at those different thresholds in the first couple of years. Um, as the person gets more, um, you know, more experience and they've put in more training time. Um, those, I mean, those, those changes tend to be smaller. So, you know, maybe you'll see something in the like a five, five to eight percent change across the course of the season. Um, but one thing I've kind of noticed with people too is, you know, at some point as that speed starts to plateau, um, at those different thresholds, they start to be able to stretch out their time there for longer periods of time. So, you know, maybe they end up at eight minutes per mile at, at VT1 and, it starts to get to the point where it's hard to get beyond that, but they're able to maintain that that velocity for a longer duration, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And I'll say that's actually a uh, 
a soapbox, so to speak, that, that Alex Hutchinson, a, uh, a kind of a renowned endurance or, or science uh, writer, has kind of harped on that at a certain point it's not so much about getting faster but making running fast feel easier or, or be more efficient, so to speak. So that's an interesting take. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. you, ta- you talked about the surprise that, that people feel, you know, when they find out what their easy pace should be. Do you do you find that people are surprised at what their faster pace may need to be, like their VO2 pace? Um, sometimes I think that, um, you know, a lot of people have done, I will say the, the like the, the VT2, I think if people really learn to do a good FTP test, like really have a well-paced 20 or 60 minute time trial, they're usually able to identify that, that power pace and heart rate pretty well based on testing there. The, the one that's really tough to pick up is the, the VT1. Um, so I haven't seen a test that really allows you to capture that outside of, um, you know, doing some type of physiological testing in the lab. Um, so they're not always surprised at the, um, like that FTP type of number. Um, but I, I think what they're they're more surprised at is like um, you know how much <laughs> that they should be spending how I guess how um, hard some of those intervals actually feel when you're you're putting that all together in the course of training. Um, so it, you know it's one thing to go out and do the test and you expect that to be very you know to be hard, um, <clears throat> but I think to you know within the training cycle. Uh, where, yes, those easy days should be easy, and part of the reason we want them to be easy is that when you get to these hard days and these harder uh, lactate threshold or VO2 workouts, you're actually able to perform them like they're supposed to be. Um, and that's that's a big mental and physical effort, but if you're able to <laughs> kind of rein things in on those other days, that should be something that you're able to perform within your training if the, the zones and the numbers are set up correctly. Right on. Right on. Yeah, I think that um, to kind of circle back to something you said and then to pick up on what you just said, 5 to 8% over the course of a season. I, I've had conversations with a lot of people about um, how perfectly acceptable it is to set your, your, your FTP number on trainer road or something like that much lower than it was at the end of the last season. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. yeah, Folks are very loath to do that, understandably, perhaps, because they feel as if they, they've lost something they're never going to get back. Um but but yeah, so I, I appreciate you kind of saying that that eight percent or sometimes even a little bit more than that 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 folks can lose just by by detraining a little bit um, during the transition season. Um, but to pick up on on kind of what you just said, so when I did and, and on Patrick's questions, when I did the test with you a year ago, um, one of the things that stood out to me was that my my fastest speeds or the speeds at which basically I should be able to race about a five k or so should have been a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. So, so effectively, one of the things I learned from the test with you is that based on the data that you gathered, I should be faster than I am. Um, mm-hmm. and what you did when you tested that is, or w- w- the day that we did that test, you also did a movement assessment. Um, and yes. you found some, some real weaknesses in, in the way that I was moving and some real inefficiencies in the way that I was moving. And so my big takeaway when I did the testing with you more than a year ago was that I need to fix those inefficiencies. Um, and, mm-hmm. then, and, and I'm kind of falling short of my, my potential because I'm not being efficient. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about the way that you combine this testing with like the physical therapy and the movement assessment and the testing and all that sort of thing. So the, the, the 
other parts of of, of your your resume. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, because yeah, I I remember your test um, really well because uh, I remember VT one was <clears throat> really close to like a predicted marathon time for you. Um, and then um, and I see this happen sometimes with experienced athletes too, where uh, you have your VO two max, which is kind of your your speed and aerobic fitness ceiling, um, and then VT two below that, and VT one you know at a, even a lower intensity below that. Um, so over time, what what you see sometimes with certain athletes is those those values all get stacked together. So um, you know, kind of you've you've started to max out that um, ability to continue to improve just on a training, you know, physiological training standpoint alone. Um, and you know, when somebody's not hitting those speeds that um, you know might be predicted from the testing, it's like, well, you know, what what else is going on? I think. You know, one thing for people, it can be, you know, your body is capable of this from a physiological standpoint, but they haven't put in the appropriate training to get to that point. Um, the other thing that can happen for people is that if their, you know, their coordination and their mobility and strength starts to break down before their physiology, then um, a lot of that energy that you're putting into um, running or racing, you know, starts to be starts to go into just holding you upright and keeping you moving in a straight line. Um, So, you know, what to see with a lot of athletes coming in for either, you know, performance or for physical therapy is that um, there's biomechanical and strength and mobility things that they can work on that can also enhance their race performance. Um, So if, you know, if you're running with, with good form for the first 10 or 15 miles of the marathon, but then your muscular system starts to <clears throat> starts to fatigue earlier and you start to have changes in those form, then you're a little less economical and um, that will start to slow your speed down because your body's using energy um, just to help try to maintain form. Right. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that that's, that that makes me want to go back to doing my Pilates again, which was uh, <laughs> which is uh, me want to do clamshells, Carrie, and we'll get to those soon enough. But uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but but yeah, that that was that became one of my major priorities after I did this test with you last year. Was that okay? I need to start doing more Pilates. I need to mo- start strengthening some of these things deep, my deep core that 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 needs mm-hmm. to be strengthened, making me inefficient. Um, and I've kind of got yeah. Off. You're 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 talking about that. Yeah, I need to get back to it. So, Patrick, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, when you look at some of the, so let's say you you have an athlete like like George who, um, <laughs> and trust me, I would fall in the exactly the same. Uh, let's say you have an athlete uh, like George who's a complete physical disaster. And I didn't say that you did, buddy. Uh, <laughs> um, what are I mean? What are some common strength and mobility exercises that you find runners need? Because you know, one thing we we talk we have talked about in the past, like our you know strength training conversation, is about how when you're running, you're you're working some muscles really hard, but then maybe there's some muscle groups or, or some you know tendons, et cetera, that that don't quite get stretched enough or have to be overcompensated. So, what are some some kind of common maladies you find with runners specifically? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, and it's funny because we, we talked about uh, clamshells and some bird dogs and things in the the first podcast. Uh, and it, it was it was fun for me to to listen to that again recently because um, 
I mean, I think anything you, you practice long enough, the way, the way that you think about things and you, as you see more people, those things start to evolve and change. Um, Wait, so, you, so you, I, are, are you going to say that you no longer believe? I don't the people too often anymore. Um, yes. I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. George, you were just ahead of the curve in. when you uh, fell off that bandwagon. You're exactly <laughs> right. So, see, I told you clamshells were garbage, Carrie. I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> I you were knew so it. good at them, though. I mean... <laughs> yeah, what am I to do with this clamshell skill that I have now? Because because that's yeah, as if. Anyway, keep going. So 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 yes. so, so by all means, go into yes. great detail as to why clamshells are, are no longer the go-to exercise. Yeah, well, and and I would say not that, not that they're not a a valuable exercise, but um, nope, you know, I late. guess what I've started started to find with people is um, uh, kind of the thought process process started to change and how I uh, treated and kind of worked through things. So I, I think the biggest thing that usually sticks out with most people, if they, especially if they're coming in with an injury, is that they've had some alterations in what would call motor control around their, their core and hips and pelvis. Um, so there's a couple of basic tests that I'll do when they come in, and it's, it's just a simple leg lift off the table. Um, but I'm watching to see if they're able to control their core while they have um, movement of their limbs. Um, so what I've what I've found, it, yeah, a lot a lot of runners do have tightness around their hips. Um, a lot of times they'll have some weakness around their hips too. Um, but I've actually found that kind of addressing some of those core coordination things first. If you can do that, what what that tends to do if you have tight hamstrings or tight hips, if your core is not doing the <clears throat> the stabilization work it's supposed to, some something else has to to hold tight to keep you upright. And for most people that I see, I, that tends to be sides of the hips and hamstrings. So it's it's been pretty interesting to see the mobility and even some of the strength people can gain just from addressing some of those motor control um, issues around the core first. So once we've done those, then kind of tend to move out peripherally and address more things going going on further out the chain, you know, through the shoulders, arms, or or anywhere down the legs. Um, but yeah, most most people come in, um, you know, with runners would say, yeah, still still some tightness around the the ankles sometimes, um, some tightness around the hips, um, and then some postural things to work on, but the kind of Treatment-wise, philosophy-wise, it's um, you know shifted this. Say like, hey, let's let's clean up as much as we can in the central part of your body and system along the spine, and then move out from there. Um, and I, I think that's really accelerated uh, progress for some people. Interesting, because when we think about running or, or really at most endurance sports, we think about knees, feet, you know, et cetera. But your your kind of your hips, your your glutes, your core—that's kind of where it all starts, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, um, yeah, I mean, posture is such a, a big part of what we do in life and how we, we stand and hold ourselves is going to affect <clears throat> everything else going on uh, with our, with our running, the positions of our knees and feet and hips. Um, so kind of working through the spine first to just found is, has been um, really valuable and helpful. And so, so it's almost, it sounds almost as if, as, as if you formerly were think were looking at the hips and now you're looking more at the spine, is that right? Yeah, well, and, and a little bit. I mean, it's still still kind of look at each 
well, still definitely look at each person as an individual and go through and, um, you know, find, find what's going to be the best treatment plan for them. Um, a, yeah, e- even after cleaning up the things around the spine, there's, there's still usually typically some weakness around the hips that we, we need to address. Um, but I, I think just kind of generally speaking, <clears throat> you know, if we, we talk about everybody coming in as a whole, um, a lot of times it is, you know, addressing some of that core stability first before we move on to other things. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, after doing that, then addressing things at the the hips or ankles or or whatever that person might need attention with tends to go a little bit more quickly than if, you know, we tried to start at that location first. Right, right. So, so we've kind of talked about performance and then, of course, it sort of falls in with performance that that would be injury prevention as well. So, so some of the things we're talking about here. Um, what about for for folks who come to you, triathletes, cyclists, swimmers, runners, who are already injured? Um, what sort of things can you do and do you do for them? Yeah. Um, so, so a variety of things, and this this is kind of where it's it's starting to evolve and how um, I practice. Um, so some of some of the things that have been learning recently about um, pain and injury and recovery is the impact that that stress has on <clears throat> uh, for one I, people are more likely to develop an overuse injury if they're under a lot of stretch stress, which is one thing that use um, heart rate variability to quantify. Um, so really quick, they, let me interrupt you. Do you mean um, yeah. like emotional stress or like physical stress? Um, and any type of stress. So stress, stress is an interesting thing. Um, so it can be, it, it comes from all sources. It can be, you know, definitely from training. That's a stress that we impose on our body. It can be, um, work related stress. Um, any type of physiological stress that comes from poor sleep or diet or anything like that. But, um, you know, any anything that your your body and your system is perceiving as stressful is something that can put you at a higher risk for um there's there's a lot of cool research on it, either chronic disease or for injury. Um it can slow down your healing time or just keep you from performing as well as you're capable of. Um, yeah, so when when people are, are coming in now, started to do um, you know, whether they're coming in for physical therapy or um you know, starting to do some more craniosacral therapy to, to work with some of those stress levels too, um, <clears throat> is we'll look at that heart rate variability along with it and just try to get an idea of how much how much stress their system as a whole is under. Very cool. Very cool. So it sounds like you're, you're using, in some ways you're using modern technology and modern approaches to, to take a more holistic old school approach to, to healing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so when, so, so tell us about, well, we want to hear about the, 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 the craniosacral therapy and, and that sort of thing um, for sure. Um, and then want to hear about the mindfulness stuff that you talked about as well. Cause that kind of ties in with what you're talking about of, of stress and all that sort of thing. Tell us about first before we talk about those sort of newer ones, um, uh, the ones that people are probably less familiar with. Tell us about some of the, the some of the, the the methods that you might use or some of your sort of go-to PT 
uh, some of the things in your go-to PT toolbox that, that folks might be a little bit more familiar with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, yeah, use a use a variety of techniques um, in physical therapy. So, um, <clears throat> you know, when people come in for for treatment, um, use some type of manual therapy technique and some type of exercise intervention with everybody who comes in. Um, and it it really does vary on uh, individual basis. Um, so some some of the things that I tend to use a lot are um, dry needling. Um, that that can be a really effective tool. Um, use a lot of muscle energy techniques. That's one <clears throat> one way that I I use to to make some adjustments around the pelvis and spine and try to uh, improve the alignment through there. Um, <clears throat> you know, soft what, what is that? What's a muscle energy technique? Yeah, so muscle energy technique is. Um, you know, we'd move move your limbs or your spine into different positions, and then um, uh, we're we're using your own musculature to try to make some adjustments around the joints and bones. So, one of, one of the really common ones is um, a lot of runners, and actually after Peachtree, it seems to be um, it, it seems like everybody comes in with some um, altered alignment around their pelvis, and I think it's primarily from those hammering the first 5k downhill um, but um but you know sometimes you'll see that uh the pelvis on one side is rotated forward relative to the other side and that would make the leg on that side look a little bit longer and then that would also change the way the spines align um so we'll, we'll do a pretty simple technique where you activate hamstrings on one side activate <clears throat> some of your hip flexors on the other side and you just use your own muscles, um, so it's a really gentle adjustment to make some alterations um, around the pelvis and spine that way. Um, and then we, we reinforce those changes with some exercises to help hold that in place. Right on. Um, so it sounds like yeah. more like a chiropractic approach. It's a bit more with blunt force, so to speak. You're taking a bit more of a passive approach or maybe a, a different approach to kind of get everything aligned. Is, is that safe to say? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Sorry, Patrick. I couldn't hear you really well there. Oh, uh, can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So uh, what I was saying is, it, it sounds like you know, if, if you look at like the chiropractic approach, it's a bit. That's a bit more of a, a kind of brute force approach where you're kind of forcing the 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 bones kind of back into place, or the, or the muscles and the joints back into place. This is a bit more uh, of a passive approach, so to speak. Um, or the passive may not be the right word, but it's kind of instead of taking a, a brute force approach, you're really kind of saying, okay, here's what we want, and here's how we can kind of slowly get there. Um, is, is that fair to say? Or is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of shared modalities among um, you know chiropractors, PTs, and and other healthcare professionals. So I, I know some chiropractors who do muscle energy. I know uh, I know PTs who do manipulations, and I I do some. Um, but uh yeah I would say the <clears throat> yeah if you if you're getting a joint manipulation which a lot of people associate with um going to see a chiropractor that that is more of a you know a really high velocity thrust to try to move things back into place um and yeah muscle energy technique is more it'll it'll still make adjustments quickly but it it's very much just using your your body's own strength and energy to, to make those adjustments versus having somebody else kind of force things into place for you. 
Right, right. And then and then it sounds also like a like a difference is that you then try and ensure that everything remains aligned by giving a lot of follow up exercise, a lot of homework, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um and that's you know, that's the whole reason for doing it. Um yeah, because, you know, once once we make those adjustments, um, you know, the exercises like to give are are things to encourage your body to get used to that position and, and to hold that position in between visits. Um, so I, I wouldn't anticipate having to do the same type of muscle energy technique every every single time a person comes in. Um, if that is the case, then that just means we probably need to <clears throat> address something else first before that's going to hold. Um or maybe it is something they need to adjust with with training or something else. But if yeah, we, we want to see those <clears throat> those changes hold using the exercises we prescribe. Um if if they're not, that's not a, a bad thing. It's just information that we need to look at something else. Right. Right. Very good. So dry needling, uh muscle energy movements. Uh do you still do uh cupping and things like that? Yeah, I do a little bit of cupping, um, probably not quite as much as I used to, but um, yeah, there are certain there are certain scenarios, and it's it's kind of based on what um, it what kind of feel when we're going through and doing an exam. Sometimes there's some scenarios, I guess, dry needling versus cupping. If you know, if going through and feel something tight, it can feel a really specific trigger point. Um, to me, that's tended to respond better to dry needling for most people. Um, if it's something more where the system is just like everything feels really tight, um, then usually something more like a muscle energy technique or like a really superficial global myofascial release, which is what I think of as, as cupping, um, that that seems to work better in those scenarios. Um, but, you know, we we always check you know, before and after to see if we got the result we wanted, and you know, if not, then we'll try something else. Right on. Yeah, that that actually reminds me of something we talked about a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, um, uh, we had a listener that asked a question and said, you know, I've heard dry needling is great. What do you think? And I remember your response um, was similar to what you just said: is that dry needling is really good for some people, but it's not sort of this catch-all thing that everybody needs. And so, if you go to a PT, you're better off going in saying, I have this issue. Put your hands on me and figure out what's wrong and and figure out a treatment as opposed to going in and saying, "Hey, I need dry needling." Is that mm. is that? It sounds like that's you. You would still agree with that, right? Yeah, I do still agree with that. I think, um, uh, you know, super. If somebody's done research or you know they've heard about a modality and like dry needling, and they come in and ask for that, um, uh, you know, if if it's appropriate, then <laughs> you know we we would definitely explore where that that fits into the like the big picture of treatment. Um, but yeah, I, I would just say anybody going in to see, um, see somebody for some type of, of body work, uh, just, just be open to, to other suggestions as well. Um, because that, you know, dry needling might work great for one person and then just not have the same effect on the other one. So it wouldn't mean that there's, there's not something that practitioner can do to help you, but it might just be that, that particular modality is not the best one for you. Yeah, and to kind of build on that, it's, it's interesting. So I've been a runner for many years, and I tend to have the same injuries or kind of nagging pains kind of from year to year. Um, it's almost mm-hmm. like clockwork, as the, whereas the miles build or we move to different stages of training, you can kind of see which ones are coming up. Do you have any advice that you give to kind of maybe experienced runners in terms of what to do to kind of prevent injuries from coming? Like maybe if you know that issues are going to – they tend to have issues with their calf or their, their hamstrings, 
on things they can do to maybe prevent, like maybe come in for dry needling, you know, every so often or for cupping every so often or anything of that nature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I know, yeah, if, if there's like a particular point in training, if it's 30 miles a week or, or whatever, just to, to pick a number for somebody, if they know that's kind of been a problem in training in the past, then, yeah, I mean, I guess two things that, that pop right into my head, um, you know, come in come in a couple months before you get to that, that point in the training cycle, um, and we could check, you know, check some movement um, and give you some exercises to work on to try to address any imbalances that, that might be there. Um, that and, and or, you know, come in and do a, a, a VO2 test and pick up those other thresholds, especially VT1. Um, because if you are, you know, if that person is somebody who tends to always train in that that gray area, um, if they're able to back off and do more easy days when it's supposed to be easy, hard workouts when it's supposed to be hard, so they actually get that stress balanced with recovery in between, I think addressing that physiological training error type of thing can help them do more mileage also or or go through that that part of their training without having injury right on um so tell us about some of the new stuff then uh you mentioned craniosacral therapy and a couple of other things so so talk to us about that mm-hmm. yeah um yeah so some of the, the newer stuff been doing um so started to practice some craniosacral therapy and then um have been offering some mindfulness courses right right now specifically for athletes and give you the, the special offer for that at the end that um, a colleague of mine, Ann Elliott's been teaching. Yeah, special offer. So I have a little bit of suspense there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I, I think along with treating the physical body, um, you know, just, just really saw the need to address some of the, um, uh, you know, some of the mental or mental aspects of, of training and then, you know, recovering from injury or just promoting longevity and wellness. Um, and I've just found that pract- a practice of mindfulness has been really beneficial for that and where craniosacral therapy, I think, also falls into that, that category too is, um, you know, mentioned a little bit earlier how stress plays a major part in development of injury and illness and the ability to heal and recover from that. Um, you know, both, both of those mindfulness is one great way to work on stress reduction. Um, and then craniosacral therapy actually got into that initially because, um, you know, some, some patients coming in, if, if they're really in a lot of pain or they're really under a lot of stress, it's, it's hard for them to handle almost any type of treatment. So, you know, some of the hands-on things, um, would, would be painful for them. Um, so hard to perform and then even doing some very basic exercises would be difficult. So it's like, man, what can I, you know, what's out there that I can help this person in the, the early stages and just try to get their nervous system calmed down because they're in such a state of, stress that it's like everything that comes into their awareness is perceived as as stressful or is perceived as painful and it's hard to break that cycle. Um, so the craniosacral therapy is a really subtle technique um, and it's it's just really light pressure around some of the cranial bones and the spine. So it's it's really working to make some adjustments around the nervous system that way. Um, and kind of the, the way that I've 
learned and heard people describe it, at least how it, you know, what, what's going on with the, the bones and the adjustments there. Um, you know, our, our nervous system is a, it is a fluid based pressure system. So you've got your brain and your spinal cord, but there's cerebral spinal fluid that surrounds all of that. And then on, you know, outside of that, you've got some really thick tissue. Um, that, that kind of keeps that all in place. And then the, the vertebrae and the cranial bones on top of that. Um, you know, so when I'm doing that treatment, you go in and you're, you're feeling along different areas of the, the head and the spine and you're, you're looking for symmetry and for even flow. And it's, it's a really subtle, um, sense of touch. And it, it's, it's really cool. I, it's actually one of my favorite things to use now. Um, but we're using that and trying to allow the, that fluid pressure along the spine to make its own adjustments um, along the bones. So not unlike muscle energy technique where we're really relying on this, the person's own system to make the adjustments, but it's even a li- little bit more subtle. Um, so, so that's been a great treatment just to, you know, calm people down in the initial stages of pain when it's really acute. But some of the stuff I wasn't expecting to find from it um, I, I, you know, I was expecting and kind of knew that it would cause a relaxation in the nervous system, but um, I, I think just how profound that relaxation can be and then what that seemed to allow people, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what it allowed people the ability to do when they're not so stressed out. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's just really interesting, um, you know, just having that moment in um, treatment where you have such a large reduction in your own perceived stress, um, that allows people to, to have the clarity to make, you know, either make difficult decisions that they're up against or, um, you know, just find ways to relax um, <clears throat> outside of that. And then it was, you know, one of the thoughts with mindfulness in relation to craniosacral therapy, it's, you know, I guess the PT brain was like, well, you know, we've just made a, a great change in this person's physiology, and then what what can I give them as their homework to try to maintain that um, in between sessions? So for PT, maybe I'd do muscle energy technique and then give some exercises to help hold your pelvis in place, for example. Um, for craniosacral therapy, the I, I guess it, when I when I've had that type of treatment, it feels very much like a meditative type of state to me. Um, and that's that's where the idea of mindfulness is something that can kind of enhance that state and prolong that state for the person outside of there. Um, you know that those two have just been a really good match. Um, um, so yeah, those yeah those are those are a couple of ways that have been uh, working on reducing stress levels for people. Certainly, Very and cool. and one thing we we know is that you know stress certainly clouds our judgment. Um, now, what are some of the, the the top sources of stress that you see among endurance athletes? Um, you know, would it be like lack of sleep? Uh, you know, not enough. They feel like they don't have enough time on their hands. What are some of the, the kind of top stresses that you see? Yeah, I'd, I'd say lack of sleep is a is a pretty big one. Um, I think people undervalue how important sleep is because that's when your body actually recovers <laughs> from the work that you've done during the day. Um, that one, and then you know, I think it a lot of it tends to be, um, I, I guess, from my my take on it is just perception around training and racing and what that should look like. Um, 
you know, whether that's from watching other people from social media or reading blogs about the how the pros train. And I think they de- tend to develop like, hey, this this is how my training should be. And, you know, when life or <laughs> whatever is starting to get in the way of that, um, I, I think just – yeah, I think just trying to <laughs> navigate, um, well, not navigate so much, but I, I guess just that perception of what training should look like um, that they've created for themselves tends to be a, a stressor as well. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it, it does make sense. And actually, I, it's it's kind of what I was thinking about when you were describing craniosacral therapy and, and certainly mindfulness as well. I'm thinking about the the no pain no gain athlete uh, mm-hmm. and, and i'm and i'm thinking about the athlete that that comes in to to the clinic um that that may or may not be injured um and and you know wants you to do something and figures that it's probably not going to be really all that helpful unless it hurts him a little bit because he's heard from other people that physical therapy is really painful and mm-hmm. then and then he lays down on your table expecting you to hurt him and you do a bunch of really light touches and around his head and around his spine. Um, do you ever get any pushback from some of those kind of old school jocks that 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 figure that that this is a bunch of hippie stuff? Um, you know, I guess not. I think not Patrick really. Was about I think... to say something there. <laughs> uh, I was just <laughs> say, I don't know if you could tell George was actually talking about himself because he's totally an old school <laughs> jock there. Well, yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. yeah um... You know, definitely not pushback from it. I think, um, you know, since it's since it's a little more subtle approach, um, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, what kind of what's going on or what are what are you feeling for? Um, so we can have a conversation about that. Um, other people tend to feel a lot, um, which is is really cool and interesting. So, you know, might be working on the the sphenoid bone, which is a super cool bone right behind your eyes. It looks like a giant moth. Um, you know, and, and they might feel things releasing around their pelvis and hips and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think people are kind of all across the spectrum on what they feel from that. But, you know, I, I think, you know, with that treatment, too, it's, um, you know, offer that as a, a standalone thing. But sometimes we'll do parts of it in, in the physical therapy treatment. And if it's, um, it, it just depends on the person if you know, if they're they're coming in looking for a particular modality at first, um, it, you know, we kind of go through, assess, talk about the treatment plan as a whole and kind of my, you know, my take on how we'd go about it. But, you know, everything that we're we're looking to change, we always test before and after. Um, so, you know, if, if they do kind of seem more geared towards a certain modality and that's that's appropriate from my take um yeah we'll, we'll do that first and um you know check before and after if it, it got the desired effect super we'll move on and and if not i think at that point people tend to be more open to other types of modalities to try to get that change um but a, a belief belief is a really powerful thing and that's something that can be a really beneficial thing in recovery so definitely never ignore that when somebody's coming in for treatment. But if, if we do go that route, if it's appropriate and it's not getting the, the right result or the, you know, getting the change that we're looking for, most, I, I guess I can't think of anybody who's been opposed to trying something else um, to see if it works. Well, that's good. That's good. That's good to hear. 
Um, I have just one more question, and then I know that uh, that Patrick might have one more question as well. But um, a couple of years ago, when we when we spoke, the law in Georgia had just changed such that you could actually go to a PT uh, without a prescription from a doctor for everything except for dry needling. Um, is is the legal situation still the same, or or kind of where are we now in in terms of uh, people coming to see you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, great question. So the um, the eight visits without a prescription and the you know or twenty one days that that hasn't changed. Um, the the law around dry needling um, hasn't changed either. I think the the interpretations of it. Has, has changed a little bit with practitioners. So there, there are some places that would allow you to come in for those eight visits and you can have the dry needling uh, performed without the prescription. Um, other other places will still require you to have that, you know, right, right at the outset before they'll do the needling. Um, so we, we've done it more that, you know, hey, we'll, we'll do the, the dry needling up you know, up until that eighth visit, and then beyond that, then we, we do need to have a referral or a res- uh, prescription for PT at that point. Gotcha. Uh, mm-hmm. Right on. Well, you've talked. To, we've talked about a lot of great topics today. Um, I know I'll probably need to go back and release this conversation to kind of uh, soak in all, everything we, we've talked about today, from from VO2 testing all the way through through mindfulness. But if if, if there were one piece of advice or one takeaway you would want endurance athletes or, or listeners of this podcast to, to take away from this conversation, uh, what would it be? Hmm. What would it be? Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that really everybody's, everybody's path to their best performance or their health or um, wellness longevity is, is a really, um, is a really personalized thing. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, great modalities out there to choose from. I think, um, you know, but I, I think having something that will address um, the whole mind, body, spirit component and kind of address the person as a whole is, is really valuable. And th- that can be different modalities for different people. If it's, you know, physical therapy and, and mindfulness for one person and then, you know, craniosacral therapy and mindfulness or something else for another person. I think just, um, you know, kind of trying to, tune in and, and see what feels best for you as a person is, is a really valuable thing. Um, and then having those kind of checks and balances in place to say like, Hey, is, is this getting me towards the, the goal or the result that I want? Um, and if it is super follow through with it, it's not either, you know, talk with your practitioner about things that could be different or, you know, maybe try out some different things that feel right. Right on. Very good. So how how can folks find you, Carrie? Yeah, so um, they can find me um, email right now, uh, Carrie at ComprehensiveEnduranceSolutions.com. Um, yeah, that, that would be the best place to contact me right now. Very good, very good. And you mentioned a special deal. Yes, special deal um, is for um, introductions to Mindfulness for Athletes course that we have coming up starting August the 1st. Um, See, I didn't talk a whole whole lot about the the practice of mindfulness, but that's that's something that um, you know is it, to me is a great way to train the mental aspect of performance. Um, so anybody who's got you know a race in Ironman Chattanooga, you know uh, 
Augusta or a fall marathon. Um, we offer this introductory course on August 8th, and then you'd have the option to get into a six-week course beyond that and really deepen your, your practice um, because in training your mind is very much like training your body. Um, you know, can't expect to go to one, you know, do one session of meditation and, um, you know, get a full understanding and the full benefits out of that one thing. But if you're able to develop that practice over time, the benefits start to accumulate just like it would with consistent um, physical training. Um, so what we're offering to your your listeners is a uh, 20% off the intra class um, on August 1st. So the um, the the original price for the intra class is $40, but if you enter the code Pleasant20, then you'll get 20% off of that price for the first 10 people to sign up. Pleasant20, I love it. Pleasant20, yeah. And if we yeah if we could post that somewhere just for your yeah your folks to have that, that'd be super. So is the mindfulness course, is that like a lot of meditation? What, what exactly is that? Yeah, so, um, so what it is, um, uh, my, one of my friends, Ann Elliott, teaches that she went through Duke's um, integrative uh, medicine mindfulness course. Um, so what, really what it is, is um, it is a type of meditation, but it's very focused on staying in the, the present moment because that, that's really the only thing that we can control um, you know, so where, where I think it's, and, and it's, so the, the intro course itself is, um, hey, you'll get a little bit of an overview of what, what mindfulness is, how it's traditionally practiced. Um, and then we take people through an awareness of breath meditation <clears throat> at the end. Um, so then they can either just, you know, use that and try to incorporate that into their, their training and practice. But we've done one six week course with athletes. And throughout the six weeks, we go into some other facets like a a body scan and just some different tools all focused on helping you stay in the present moment. Um, but what's been cool about those is like people will practice the meditation throughout the, you know, throughout the days and weeks. And then we'll get on the phone or meet in person once a week and everybody shares their experiences. Um, and that, that was really helpful for people because I think there's so much out there about mindfulness and meditation right now. And um, I think just that it's gotten to be such a big mainstream media thing. People tend to um, do, you know, consider it something that they would like with the rest of Western civilization where it's like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do this like three, you know, three day course or, you know, get on headspace and really learn about the practice. Um but, you know, from the people we've had go through it, having that instruction from an experienced instructor and having the interaction in like a classroom-based type of setting really helped them to learn the practice a little bit more deeply than they would without that. Um, so it's, it's been super cool. Um, that's, that's something I wish I would have learned a long time ago. Um, but great for sports performance, and then it's, it's been helpful for people managing pain and stuff like that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Carrie, we really appreciate it. This has been a, a great conversation, and I think you're doing some good work. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks, guys, for having me, and uh, always fun to chat.
And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And, of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.